The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, what comes into your mind when you hear the word law? Just think about that for a minute. When I say law, what resonates with you? What do you think about? No doubt rules, both local, city, county, state, federal governments enact on us we typically think of as laws. They give us regulations, things we have to obey or, or else there are consequences. That's usually what people understand when they hear the word law. But when we come to the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and when the New Testament picks up on what the Old Testament describes as law, it's a problematic association when we bring our English understanding of law into the Old Testament and to the biblical concept. Our language and context on the word law could not be further from what the Old Testament means when it says the word law or the New Testament as well. Think of it like this, the glory of Israel, the pride of Israel, the sense of identity that unified Israel with itself and with its Lord as a nation and with the individuals was the law. Israel loved the law of God. The Mosaic law, the law that God gave Moses in the wilderness of Sinai where they had been wondering until they got to Sinai, wondering about this Yahweh that they had known by tradition primarily only, and then God explains himself by explaining the law. The people of God wrote songs about the law. They loved to extol the law. They loved to celebrate the law. There were festivals that honored the law of God. Lives were defined by the law. Paul called the law quote, the embodiment of knowledge and truth in Romans 2.20. That's quite a statement. The embodiment of truth and knowledge. He said that the law for those who know it is, quote, this is Paul in Romans 2, a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of infants. The law, however, in our generation and sometimes in our theological corners of the world has really taken a a punch in the eye. It bears a black eye. Few people would look at the law and say very much positive. I want to try to persuade you to think differently about the law tonight. I think if we were to think that the law is just a bunch of rules given by God in order to control behavior or to regulate our, our thinking and our, our living, then I would probably have a very negative view of the law as well. In fact, confession is... Until I began studying the Old Testament more, more um, intently and looking specifically into what the law is and what the law isn't, I had a pretty negative view of the law as well. Paul said, we're not under law, so what do I have to do with the law? It's in the Older Testament. I mean, have you read Leviticus 19? There are some odd laws in there. However, when you read Psalm 119... 176 verses which extol the law of God. Most of us just give that pass. I think it might have been Daniel, not David, who wrote Psalm 119. It's unassigned, so it's, 
I can uh, have as good a guess as any, any other person. But whoever wrote Psalm 119, for 176 verses, in every single verse says something positive about what you and I would call the law. Now, most people, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with this, would take what he says about the law and extend it to the Word of God in general, and those, that's not a principle I would deny in any sense. However, in its original authorial intent, all that's said in Psalm 119 is about that law that we look at and say, those poor Israelites, I can't believe they were under the law. What is the law? Let's, let's dive into it a little bit. Now, as I said last week, this is going to be a little more like a theological classroom than a, than a sermon per se, but we're still setting in our mind what, what, the, what the rules are, what the approach is going to be before we jump into the law being articulated and preached upon by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, beginning next study. The law is basically constitutional literature, the constitution for Israel. Now, what is the law? Let's define the law. Now, this is in very, very important stuff. You'll hear it over and over and over throughout the book of Deuteronomy as we study it. It's the word in Hebrew, Torah. You've heard of the Torah. The word Torah doesn't have the sense of law like you and I would define law, like don't drive more than 55 miles an hour, or don't do this, or don't do that, or make sure that you have a leash on your dog, some civil and, and local laws. That's not the idea here. It encompasses that, but the, the simple meaning of the word law, the word Torah, is the word instruction. You can do a, a, a synonym swap anytime you see the word law in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. And when rightly defined and rightly applied, it should stand for instruction. Now, a little, a little background. By the time you get to the book of Romans, we're going to say this intently when we get into chapters 3 and 4 and 5. What had happened was the regulating part of the law, all the, all the commands that were supposed to be obeyed, and there were over 600 of them, had become unfortunately assigned to a way to acquire salvation by what was called the, the second temple nomist. Nomos is the Greek word for law. And in that second temple Judaistic system that Jesus walks into, that Paul defines the gospel in, in that context, the Jews had wrongly said, obey the law, you'll go to heaven. Disobey the law, you'll go to hell. They had defined it so much so that they began adding laws to the law in the laws in the Old Testament. They were adding laws upon laws upon laws so that you, you get the definition and redefinition of laws, they were, they were actually misappropriating, misunderstanding the original intent of laws so that when you see uh, uh, the law of don't boil a, a kid in, in its mother's milk, that became don't eat meat and dairy together. Now, this is taken very seriously. I was in Israel a few years ago, and I was very unaware of what I was doing, but I had gotten a... Um, a shawarma. You guys know what the shawarma is? If you've been to Israel, it's basically carved meat and a pita. And my friend comes over, and he was eating a bagel with cream cheese. We were at the same table. We weren't even eating them together. The idea of a cheeseburger, by the way, bad idea. We were sitting at the same table, and I had a little Jewish man come up with a rolled-up magazine and whack me in the back. He was so... I was just stunned. I mean, it's been a long time. No, I had never been whacked in the back by a little Jewish man. And he was telling me that I was violating the law and making his 
table unclean. And I had to leave immediately because meat and cheese were at the same table. Well, that's a far cry from the authorial intent of what these laws were intended to do. Law just means instruction. It's used in a variety of ways, but it means divine instruction for God's people. When the frequent technical and non-technical uses are considered, it occurs 221 times in the Old Testament. It's obvious that the word does not primarily refer to law. Rather, it refers to the instruction of God to Israel, the people of God, regarding her responsibilities to be holy. Now, just for trivia, or just for instruction, there's at least four major blocks of prescription, uh, laws that do regulate, that tell you what to do and what not to do in the Old Testament, known as the law codes. The Decalogue, which is Exodus 21 to 17, obviously, and in Deuteronomy 5. The Book of the Covenant, which is in Exodus 21 through 23. The Holiness Code, which is Leviticus 17 through 25. And the Deuteronomic Code, which is Deuteronomy 12 through Deuteronomy 26. There's other blocks of prescription as well. But those are the only sections that have what we usually consider law. Do this, don't do that. Um, uh, make sure that you're not eating this. Make sure you are eating that. You're doing this on that day, not that on that day. Make sure you're not mixing uh, wool and cotton. Make sure this and that. Those are small sections, actually, of what people designate as the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. As I said, the Old Testament contains over 600 commandments given to Israel in the law. And the redeemed community was to keep these commandments as evidence of their love for Yahweh, for God, not in order to earn favor with God. These laws were not given to obtain salvation, but to demonstrate a salvation already possessed. If you hear nothing else tonight, please mark that in your mind. The law was given as a way to express obedience to God and a salvation already acquired, not a list of regulations to obey so that salvation could be attained. It's important to recognize, by the way, that not all this designated law is prescriptive material that tells you what to do. You realize that the book of Genesis is law. And the book of Genesis has zero commands in it. And yet it's designated as the law. It's the first book of the law. So let's, let's back up now. Put your seatbelt on. Sharpen your pencil for just the next few minutes. Let's, let's go to seminary class because we have to grab some char- characterizations to bring back with us before we even jump into Deuteronomy. How do you characterize the law? Well, most theologians, or, or a lot of theologians, would, would basically look at the law with three dimensions that, that they, they, they say every law falls into these categories. And it's helpful, although I think it's problematic. Some say there's a civil, ceremonial, and moral aspect of the law. A civil. In other words, some laws governing the social national matters of Israel. It's intended to govern constitutionally the nation of Israel. Ceremonial. In other words, these were the laws governing sacrificial systems and and days of, of worship. And then moral laws. Laws governing ethical, moral matters of behavior. And when you read the law, you can see those different categories, those different dimensions uh, expressed in any, any law. And that, that's a helpful way of looking at it. It might not be the best way because there's a lot, of, a lot of moral laws that have civil and ceremonial attachments. It's very difficult to see a ceremonial or civil attachment that's not moral in nature. 
So you start looking at that in particular, and it gets a little muddy. That's typically given, those three, that, that trichotomy view of the law, as it's called, typically given so people will know which part of the law matters to us. And they would say, well, the civil and ceremonial don't have anything to do with us. We don't have a sacrificial system, and we're not national Israel, so we'll just obey the moral dimensions of the law. Sounds like a good plan, more difficult to apply when you actually begin determining what's moral and what's not. Because any Old Testament Jew would have told you the whole thing is moral and has to do with obedience and disobedience before God. That's the trifold understanding of the law. Then there's the legal designation. Now, these are, these are some bigger words, but I think they're really helpful. Uh, the first is to look at, as, uh, look at the law as casuistic and apodictic. Now, just hang on with me a second. Casuistic comes from the word case. It means there's case laws, and apodictic uh, is laws that, that have no association with anything specific. L- l- let me give you an example. Uh, a, a case law is is an if-when, if-then. If you do this, then this is the consequence. If your neighbor falls off your roof because there wasn't a guardrail, then there's a consequence. If your neighbor falls off of your roof and there was a guardrail, then there's this consequence. It's case laws. It's looking at cases just like in our civil system and says, this is what happens. What's the if-then about that? There are apodictic laws, though, as well, and they are... They are not associated with a case. They're universal. For example, you shall, you shall not. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall not commit murder. These are apodictic. In other words, they're not attached to a specific situation. They're just moral laws that are given, by the way, that the whole nations were held accountable to as well. When you look at Exodus 21 and 22, you can see a lot of case laws that are given. Very interesting. So how, what do we do with these laws? How do we assign ourselves? I mean, what in the world is a, is a man who, who might or might not have a guardrail around his roof, what, what does that have to do with, with me today as a Christian in our day? Well, we've got to back up. Let's ask some questions and answer them simply. What's the function of the law, of the instruction, of the Torah? What, what is it there for? What did God intend for it to do and intend for it to be? Well, we have to ask that question first and foremost about Israel. What was the law to Israel? Now, as I've said over and over, the law was not given to Israel to acquire salvation. How was a person saved in the Old Testament? A person was saved in the Old Testament, listen, the same way a person is saved in the New Testament, by grace, through faith. The object for them was a whole lot different than it is for us. God said, if you give this sacrifice, if you provide this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, I will forgive your sin. It was still by grace. It was still through faith. God revealed himself. They said, I'm going to do it. Now, the book of Hebrews, in a wonderful way, says no one was ever forgiven by the blood of bulls and goats. But in God's eternal degree, in a mysterious way that I can't even imagine, in heaven, retrofitted, the forgiveness extended in the gospel back to them even though they didn't believe in the nuances of the gospel. I mean, read Hebrews 9 and 10 and 11. It's an amazing thing. No one was ever ultimately forgiven by the sacrifice of an animal, but God says, sacrifice this animal and I will count you as forgiven. So they did. They didn't see a crucified Messiah on a cross 
when they saw those animals. By grace, through faith, in God's revelation. If they extended their faith to God because of the grace that was given to them, then that was the way they were saved. By the way, when we get to Romans 9, we'll find out that Paul says not all Israel was what? Israel. What is he saying there? Just because you were a Jew, just because you were circumcised, just because you were part of the nation of Israel, didn't make you saved. It was those who expressed faith in God and believed in God for the salvation. But with respect to the law, the law was given as a way for them to be sanctified, not justified. This is what God has done to save you, therefore act like you are a redeemed person, part of the redeemed community. It was an expression of the covenant relationship that Israel shared with God, Exodus 19.8 says. The law for Israel also provided the means for Israel to show the glory of God to the nations. Just for a minute, look over at Deuteronomy chapter 26. I'm going to turn to a couple of passages tonight that I think will be very helpful in instructing us on what was going on with the biblical writers and readers' understanding of the law when they recorded God's revelation. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. Remember, We'll get this. Moses is preaching about the law on the plain of Moab to the nation of Israel as they're going into the land, and he can't. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and these ordinances, the law. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God, that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and listen to his voice. The Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession, as He promised you, and that you should keep all His commandments, and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. Very interesting. Moses is saying God's given you the law and your obedience to God in the law will be an evangelistic invitation to the nations to come and understand your God. Let's ask a different question. That was for Israel. What was the law relating to Jesus? How did Jesus deal with the law? Well, Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20 tell us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. It included satisfying all the law and the, uh, demanded all the requirements of the law as well as being the incarnation of its promises to Israel. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that. He, he, he fulfilled every way the law could be o- obeyed in principle and in category, but not necessarily in every single a nuance, because the law said, ask forgiveness for your sins. Well, Jesus didn't have to do that. But any way that God could be obeyed in principle, Jesus fulfilled. Jesus saw the law as the expression of a person's wholehearted devotion to the law. Jesus showed that the law is far more than a list of rules. Rather, it gives obedient expression for genuine love for God and for others. And for this, we have to turn to a very important text in Matthew 22. 
may be the most important thing we'll discuss tonight in reference to the law. In Matthew 22, Jesus, as you know, is just coming toward the end of his life. He is having continual bouts with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sure enough, once again, he comes up against it in the Sadducees. And in Matthew 22, we find this debate reaches a, uh, a point where Jesus has to define and redefine what the law actually is, what it's supposed to accomplish. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, let's pick it up in verse... Um, Oh, 34. Um, give me a second. I'm trying to decide which, how much of this. Yeah, let's pick it up in 34. Matthew 22, 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and this is, remember, they're bouncing back and forth, and they, they give the Sadducees a swing at Jesus, they miss. They give the Pharisees a swing at Jesus, they miss. They're bouncing back and forth. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer. Now, here it is, lawyer. Remember, this is not like you think of a civil or a criminal lawyer. A lawyer here was basically a, a theologian, someone who's an expert in the law. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? It's a great question, actually, isn't it? Because what they were trying to do is get Jesus to answer a question and find a way that he wasn't obeying the law, and then they would trap him. What's the great commandment in the law? He said to him, Jesus says back, here it is, boom, instant answer. No, no need to go study for this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you expect, you, you can almost hear the, Sadducees, the Pharisees start arguing, like, what are they going to say next in that space? And before they can even uh, uh, generate a response, Jesus says, You didn't ask for this, but and, uh, 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 that's the great and foremost commandments. The second is like it. And you can hear them going, we didn't ask him what number one and two was, just number one. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Looking at Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then he says this, on these two commandments depend the whole law and So when Jesus looked back at the law, he gave us a very clear way. He wasn't looking at the civil, ceremonial, and moral. He wasn't looking at casuistic and apodictic. He said, it all really boils down to two things. Every point in the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the explanations that come through the prophets and other laws given beyond that through the, through the scriptures, all of those laws, all of that instruction, all of those narratives, all of those stories... All of that boils down to teaching us either something about how to love God better or something about how to love our neighbor as ourself better. It's real simple. You just said, it's all, this is not complicated. All of that minutia, all of the grandiose, all of the little pedantic, ultimately boils down to this. You're learning how to love God better. You're learning how to love your neighbor better. Now, with that, 
I want you to turn back over to Harvard. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 for a second. Uh, because this is the one that, that a lot of people will give as an example of what in the world does that have to do with us. In Deuteronomy chapter 22... I love the title to this uh, chapter in the New American Standards. It says, Sundry Laws. <laughs> Just a bunch of laws. A bunch of things to think about. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, huh? God's regulating our behavior all the way down to our construction contracts? When you build a new house... You shall make a parapet. A parapet was a, was a, basically, it was a wall. It was a fence. It was a guardrail on top of the roof. Why? So that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. You say, okay, hmm. Is, does that have anything practical to say or to speak into my life today? Let's ask Jesus. All the law and the prophets are teaching us something about how to love God better or something about how to love our neighbor better, right? So what's this about? This is, this is just a simple expression of take care of your neighbors. Remember, they were flat-roofed houses, usually adobe, that were, they were you know, uh, built one by one by one. They would save walls that way. You know, so you just, you just add on and add on and add on. With a flat roof on top, that's where you would go up and you would bathe. You would, you would have privacy. Remember, that's where David looked down and saw Bathsheba on, bathing on the roof of her house. Well, why does God say, make sure you have a guardrail? Because he says, if your neighbor's up there, you want him to fall. <laughs> it's teaching us how to love our neighbor by taking care of him, by having a guardrail. Even the most mundane. You say, what about Leviticus 9 when it says, don't have a tattoo? Now, I know that there's a lot going on about tattoos. What that's given in is, is in a context where it's, don't be involved in divination. Don't do that. Tattoos in that culture were ways that you marked yourself as being owned by a foreign deity. So what does that tattoo have? It has to do with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if you say, well, what does that have to do with tattoos today? That verse, probably very little. But there are other verses that would have something to say to that, and I'd be glad to have you over for a cup of coffee and talk to you about that. So these laws, when you get stuck, just say, well, hang on, time out, back up. What is this teaching me about loving God? What is this teaching me about loving others? Now, that's in the regulating principles. Genesis 1.1. What is that teaching us? How to love God or how to love our neighbor? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. That's teaching us the one who we should love, can love, and the reasons he should be loved. It's instructing us about the wonder of God, the amazing splendor of God as the creator. So Jesus gives us the hermeneutical paradigm, the way to approach the Old Testament law by simply saying, the whole law depends on these two things. Are you going to love God? Are you going to love your neighbor? We have to ask this right now, even though we're going to have a fuller explanation of this in just a few months. What did the law mean for Paul? We have to ask that and answer that because that's, that's the debate in theological, scholarly circles today. What did the law mean to Paul? Was Paul pro-law or was Paul anti-law? Well, for Paul, the law was, drumroll, good. Because without it, 
we would not know what sin is, Romans 3.30 says. No way we would understand what sin was. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse, verse 6 to 8 is what he's referencing there. Without the law, we don't know what, what, what's wrong, what, what we did wrong. Compare this for a moment to the foreign um, deities that Israel was to be evangelizing. They literally, these foreign cultures, woke up every morning wondering, what kind of mood is my God in? Is he in a good mood, bad mood? What's he like? What's, what's he or she like? I'll read you a prayer uh, of, a, of, a, of an ancient um, worshiper called Prayer to an Unknown Deity where it goes on and on saying, uh, to the God I may or may not know, what have I done to offend you? What have I done to please you? How in the world can I know what you think? Israel was able to back up and say, we know exactly what God is like. We know exactly what God expects. We know exactly how God thinks because of the law. He also said in Romans, excuse me, in 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does that mean? Let's, let's supply our, 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 our synonym. The instruction is good if one uses it instructively. Instructively for what? Here it is. For Paul, the New Testament believer, can appreciate the application of the Old Testament law by teaching us how to love God and love others as a means of our sanctification, not a means of our justification. Very important distinction. And we won't get into this too much because when we come back through uh, Romans 3 and 4, we're going to see explicitly how Paul says we're not under law. And he was fighting a certain Jewish sect that was saying we were under law just for justifying grace. The law was, not, was never the way of salvation. Paul's negative comments about the law always occur in context where he's debating with Judaizers the way of salvation for the Gentiles. His frustrations, by the way, are less with the law and more with his inability to obey it. Wait till we get to Romans chapter 7. So what does that do? Let me tell you what I'm not saying. A few, few footnotes. I am not saying we need to go back and obey all of the sundry laws in the Old Testament. In fact, some of those have been radically altered. Some of those, praise God, have been radically altered. Remember Acts 10? Remember Cornelius? Remember the sheet? Peter, that great Jew, sees this vision, this divine projector screen is dropped in front of him. This divine video plays out. He says, here's some unclean animals. Rise. Kill. What? Eat. I don't think I've ever eaten, since I read, studied that passage, a BLT without praising God for Acts chapter 10. It was good to move to Kansas City to know Acts chapter 10. So why was that? Here it is. Listen. Because in, and we're, we're going to get to this in Deuteronomy, so just bear with me. But in that context, and in that culture, he was saying, I want you to be so distinct from the foreign nations that you eat differently than they do. So that you couldn't share a meal and have fellowship without the subject of, of me coming up. Why don't you eat pork? Why don't you eat shrimp? And then they would have to say, well, God doesn't want us to do that. Why? First answer is, he told us to, and that's enough. Second answer is, he wants us to be a holy, separated, consecrated people to himself, distinguished from the nations. It's the same thing, without getting graphic in 
We're going to deal with some graphic passages in Deuteronomy. It's the same thing with circumcision. Why would he choose that to demonstrate his people? So that if there were ever an opportunity for infidelity, there would be a question about why are Jews different than Gentiles? God said, I'm going to put a fence around your life, and it's going to make you holy, and obeying me inside that fence is going to give you such freedom to live life in a way that's pleasing to me and that brings brings pleasure to you. So remember, we're going to get into a lot of these, these, these little sundry laws and what does that mean when we get into it, but the bottom line is a good reason to study the law, Deuteronomy, which is what we're going to, the second law, Deuteronomy, second law, which is not giving a law twice, it's, it's Moses' sermons about the law in the plains of Moab as Israel's about to cross over and go into, into the promised land. Moses is saying, this is my last shot. I want to preach to you the law. And you get his heart. You get him giving the law, reiterating the law, and then explaining the law. He was a great expository preacher. He stated it, and he explained it, and he applied it. So where, where does that leave us? What does that do for us? What should that uh, uh, intimate for us? Well, let me first of all say that it has great practical um, implications and applications for you. And one thing, if, if, if I can just help us all with two different words. If you study the law for exact applications, you're going to find them sometimes, but you're going to be frustrated a lot of times. Don't look at all of the nuances of the law for specific applications. But look at the law for specific implications. You know what I mean by implications? It's something that's implied by that. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.8, make sure you have a parapet, make sure you have a wall so people don't fall off your roof. Well, that's an implication. What is, what is an implication for us today? Now, this may sound silly, but if you have a pool, put a fence around it. That protects the kids in the neighborhood. God regulates our life down to that level where we're looking out for the people around us. That's how God is. When we get to the, the specific Decalogue in, in Deuteronomy 5, all of those laws, remember this, all of those laws are giving, given to protect the rights of others and not you. They're all about protecting God's rights and protecting the rights of others. Don't commit adultery. That's protecting your friend's right to a, a pure marriage. Don't covet. That's protecting your friend's right to, to security. Don't, don't bear false witness. That's protecting your friend's right, others' right to, to a, a, a reputation that's honorable. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. That's protecting God's right. Don't have any images. That's protecting God's right to the definition of who he is. We don't get to carve something and say, this is God. God defines who he is. Wait till we get the third, the third commandment, which is very interesting, uh, where God says, um, don't, uh, don't take my name in vain, which has nothing to do with cussing. Nothing. The word nasa, it means carry, it means wear, it means like put a jersey on, put a toga on. Do not wear the name of the Lord in vain. It's talking about don't say you belong to God and act like you don't. We'll get to more of that when we can. Now, sure, if you 
you're using God's name in a bad way. That's not helping your cause. But it wasn't the primary implication or application to not use God's name in a derogatory fashion in the third commandment. It's saying you're protecting God's right to his people, to his representation. So what do we do? What's the takeaway? Well, let's kind of draw, draw some conclusions to, to this data, knowing that this is just introductory. We're going to come back to all of this when we get into Deuteronomy. But we have to say, what is the Christian's relationship to the law? What do we do with Genesis through Deuteronomy? What do we do to the prophets who say, do this, don't do that? What do we do with, uh, with uh, Obadiah who tells the nation of Israel how to deal with Edom? What does that have to do with us? Those are specific laws. Well, first of all, if you want a little bullet point list, number one, see the law as godly instruction. See the law as godly instruction. God did not say, well, I'm going to deal with Israel for a few thousand years. Okay, done with that. Now I'm going to deal with the church. Because James says there's the law of Christ, and the Old Testament is full of explanations about grace. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to obey the law in the ceremonial senses that the Jews did. We don't have to have a year of jubilee, for example. And Colossians will instruct us on what those new moons, those Sabbaths, and all of those celebrations meant. But see it as godly instruction. Godly instruction for what? How to love God better. How to love your neighbor better. When you look at the stories, the legal material... Understand they provide invaluable guidelines for living a God-pleasing life. Here's the question I have for radical um, dispensationalists. Underline the word radical. I'm dispensational. I'm not covenant. But the radical dispensationalists would say that the Old Testament law has nothing to do with us. The radical dispensationalists would say not only does the Old Testament have nothing to do with us, neither does the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is for preparing us for kingdom living. We're not in the kingdom yet, so that doesn't apply. Well, we're not going to go that far. I don't know of anyone in our church who would go that far. This gives us categories and ways to live a God-pleasing life by how to love God and how to love others. Secondly, see the law as instruction for principles in A, loving God, and B, loving others. You just said that. Specifically, look at the verse, look at the pericope, the story, the plot line, and say, what, is this? what does this teach me? I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're reading through um, uh, the Noetic account, if you're reading about Noah, what does that teach you about loving God and loving others? You know, we, we can talk all about what, who were the sons of God in, in Genesis 6. Were they angelic creatures and were they... Were they, were they demon-possessed people? What were, there's about five main views, and they're, they're all pretty good ones. Um, and if, if you have a strong conviction on that, come and tell me. We can have a good cup of coffee and, and talk about that. But the problem is when people say, well, God sent the flood in order to, one of those views, in order to prevent demons cohabitating with humans and creating a hybrid demon-human race. Interesting theory, except for the fact that the Bible doesn't say that. It does say in Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness and evil on the world was fully exploited by the people, and so he judged them for their sin. It says nothing about preventing a demon-human hybrid race. And God has no speech impediment. Had he wanted to say that, he had 
much in the Hebrew language he could have used to have said exactly that, but he didn't. So what does that teach us? Well, it certainly teaches us how to love God. I mean, there's a, remember when we were teaching our, our kids when they were real small, that, that simple lesson. Watch this. Obey God, obey mom and dad, equals blessing. Good. Disobey God, disobey mom and dad, equals pain. You got it? Well, Genesis 6 is a very living reality on this. Number three, please do not understand the law as the way that Israel or anyone else has ever been saved. Please, I beg you, don't think they were saved by law, we're saved by grace. If they were saved by law, then we have a problem. Because Paul said no one is saved by works. No one's saved by the works of the law. So did God just change? No, he didn't at all. One more thing. Number four. Don't put a line between the testaments that God didn't put. What do I mean by that? The, as we've been studying you know, over the past few weeks, we'll see this, we see it more in Romans. We saw it last week. The, the first generation of, of believers were, were struggling with, what does this mean? I mean, are we Jews? Are we completed Jews? Are we, are we, are we Messianic Jews? What about a Gentile? Is he now, a, where are they fed? Do we, all, the, all the way to the point where Peter actually tells the Galatians, if you really want to be saved, what? You better be circumcised. And the great Peter, the wonderful apostle, was rebuked, and for all eternity that rebuke is held in the book of Galatians, God's words eternal. For the rest of eternity, there's Peter's correction. Salvation is always by grace, it's always through faith, and for us, the Old Testament leads to the wisdom, we said this morning, the wisdom that leads to the knowledge of Christ, which is alone where salvation resides. Now, this is going to cause some questions, and let me answer a few of them now and a few more as we go into Deuteronomy. Well, did, did those Old Testament sacrifices really forgive their sin? Good question. And the answer is yes and no. What does Hebrews tell us? He made propitiation. He made the sacrifice, and he sat down one sacrifice forever. Sacrificial system done. God saves by grace through faith in his revealed object of faith. And for us, we don't have the option of going back. You ever wonder what Hebrews 6 is about? Hebrews 6 has got a, caused a lot of people a lot of consternation. If you tasted the heavenly gift and you turn away, it's impossible for you to be renewed to repentance. You can't be saved. What's that talking about? This makes sense. It's talking about those who were Judaistic, understood that their, 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 under, their, their understanding of, of uh, obeying the law. They looked at the gospel and said, ah, no, we're going to go back to the law. He's going, are you kidding? There is no way forward for you if you go back to the law after you've come to the knowledge of, of the gospel of salvation. Don't draw a line between the Testaments to such extent that you say it's a different God with a different 
way of saving people. God always saves by grace. He always saves through faith. The Old Testament said, I'm going to, by looking at those, those mountaintops with all the valleys, the Old Testament predicted over and over and over, one will come who will provide ultimate and final salvation, and that's Christ. They were looking for him, as First Peter says. They were, they were long, those poor prophets. I, I read First Peter and I think, those poor guys, they're prophesying, saying, I wonder what kind of person it's going to be. I, I wonder when it's going to be. Remember Simeon? God said, you won't die until you see the Messiah. Talk about interesting days. So Simeon goes to the temple every day. Where else would the Messiah show up? He's looking around. I love this. That guy's strong, good looking. He knows the law. Man, maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. No, it's not him. What about that guy? Here comes a, a leader who's, who's rising up. He's getting promised. Man, no, it's not that guy. And then God, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. God brings the one with dirty diapers, a little baby. And he knew. Instantly, the Holy Spirit says, this is the one. And what did he say? Oh, I love that. He says, now that I've held him in my arms, I can die. I have seen the salvation of the Lord. That was Simeon that God said, you're going to see. But Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, all those prophets who were, they had this data that was incomplete. It wasn't collated in their mind. Paul says, why? Why was it, wasn't it collated in their mind? It was a... Mystery, mysterion. It was, it was not fully revealed until God became a man. Which is why Paul looks at, at, in 1 Corinthians and says, this was foolishness. What Jew would have predicted, what Jew in his, in his right theological mind would have predicted that Messiah would have been rejected, be crucified on a cross, cursed as everyone who ends on a tree, we'll get there in Deuteronomy, and rise from the dead. Well, if they had been reading the Old Testament rightly, they would have seen that. And when confronted with that, they should have recognized that. I was talking to, to my wife today and even a couple other people about, when you start looking, you remember this morning Romans, we were looking at Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment, back and forth, back and forth. I gave you about 40 and there were over 300. When you look at that, when you're confronted with that, which is statistically impossible that all of that could, could not be Jesus with the biography we know of Jesus, how could anyone, why would anyone look at that and, and reject Christ? My bigger question is how can someone who's an Orthodox Jew who believes in the Old Testament read all that and see Christ? And reject him. And the only answer is, you think it's hard for us to figure that out? Imagine those who heard Jesus, those Jews who heard Jesus in the flesh. And they rejected him. It's all and it's only the work of God in salvation. We should be glad about that. Because if, if it weren't for that, none of us would have believed. Now, I know that this little study brings, us, brings a lot of questions. and I understand that. We're going we're gonna to answer those throughout Deuteronomy. A few closing footnotes, okay? First of all, I'm a New Testament believer. I'm a New Covenant guy. I'm preaching Romans. It's going to be hard to disguise that in the coming weeks. Um, I don't want to go back and live under the Old Testament law. 
But God preserved the first three quarters of his Bible, the first two-thirds, depending on whether you include the New Testament use of the Old. He preserved all that for a reason. What was it? If it was just to tell us about Christ, remember what we, said, what we found this morning? Jesus revealed all that was about him on the road to Emmaus with two guys walking down the road, and it was only seven miles. A couple hours. Let's, let's double it. Four hours. Takes you more than time than that to read the Old Testament. Then why do we have all of this stuff? Jesus said, it's easy. That's going to give you instruction on how to give God glory and love and honor and praise more in, in every category, every dimension, every little, every little nuance of your life. And it's going to make you look at others and know how to love them in ways that truly make you die to who? Self. Someone said that the horizontal um, aspects of the law are God's way of applying what Paul said in Philippians 2. Treat others as more important than yourself. We're going to get to see that. No one has been. No one ever will be saved by the law. The law does not demonstrate or, or explain or offer justifying grace, being justified before God. But the law does give us opportunities to understand sanctifying grace, how to be holy. By implication, not always by application. And we're going to explain more of that as we move through Deuteronomy. We're going to get to the Ten Commandments pretty quick. What do the Ten Commandments have to do with you and me today? Good question. You've got to keep coming back on Sunday night to find out. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we believe that your word is holy as we studied this morning from Genesis through Revelation. There's so much about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that's, that's puzzling, and yet your son was so helpful and explicit when he said, all of it depends on our understanding of loving you and loving others. So as we approach the book of Deuteronomy in our next study and look at Moses preaching the law to the Israelites who are about to inherit the land, to be a representation to the pagan nations, to be a separate people and a holy people and a God-fearing people if they obeyed the law. Teach us how to be sanctified by these principles and guard us from any thought that anyone could be saved by keeping these principles. We're grateful for the law. We're grateful for your word. Forgive us when we look down on it. Give us instruction even on our daily Bible reading and our quiet times. What does this have to do with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for telling us what it has to do with us. Open our eyes that we may be, be, behold wonderful things from your law. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>